Hey, I can cross now, that's good. Um, a, uh, a gentleman just uh, careened through the pedestrian crossing on a red light and nearly ran me over. What the f... Uh, that wasn't cool. <laughs> I often wonder about that, that um, with uh, Sydney being in lockdown for a few months and people in Melbourne being in lockdown for a certain amount of time, well, I say certain amount of time for a lot more than we have, uh, cumulatively speaking, but even just uh, aviation around the world essentially grounding to a halt for 18 months and then people coming back again. It makes me worried a little bit just how how we're all going to respond if, if and when life starts to get back to normal in most parts of the world. Because there are an awful lot of pilots who haven't had much um, training or real-world experience of late. God, you think about that, that it just demonstrates just, oh, we can cross again. I have to look out for a van that has forgotten how to drive. Yeah, you think about pilots. It's such a critically important job. And if you weren't lucky enough to land a gig in a, a freighter or cargo, wow, you would just, one minute you would have all your life sort of planned out and then the next minute, next minute, it just, your whole world would just come crumbling down. And what do you do after that? I mean, it's such a specialized skill. You don't, yeah, it just, it, it blows my mind. You'd almost have to start from scratch somewhere else and just hope that one day it'll all pick up. I was watching this great documentary a few years ago. I watch a lot of documentaries, they're kind of my favorite things. About a group of um, young British pilots back in the day who, I say back in the day, it was a, a I've, wow, I've already started referring to pre-COVID times as back in the day. That's a bit scary. But yeah, they, um, these British pilots worked for these uh, remote uh, aviation companies in Indonesia. So these little prop planes that could have between 8 and 10 people in it oftentimes landing on unpaved runways and stuff in uh, remote parts of Kalimantan and um, Sulawesi and these kind of places. Really as far removed from the world that I know as, um, as probably you could possibly get, even though they're right on my doorstep, which is, it's, it's amazing. Like Australia is strange that by all accounts, like geographically, we are so close to so much of Asia here. And yet we see ourselves as so thoroughly kind of Western and European. And had the world turned out just ever so slightly differently, that could have been completely different. Certainly for the people here who were here first, would probably, all, well, there's no probably about it, would have certainly been a better outcome than what they got uh, here. I guess same thing with the native peoples of North America and uh, Actually, pretty much anywhere where people who sort of had a, a society had it upended. Right, you, you think of um, the conquistadors and 
what they did to South America. I just, wow. Anyway, wow, that, I didn't intend for it to go down that avenue. Yeah, the before times. So, yeah, these pilots were flying around Indonesia, and the reason why was because there was such a demand for pilots back in the UK, especially with the sort of the advent of budget airlines and things. There was just an explosion in, um, in traffic and demand, and they couldn't train pilots fast enough. And so if you wanted to get into the field to sort of secure those... Uh, lucrative contracts and and um, full-time jobs working for the big airlines like British Airways and these kind of things you kind of had to work up from the beginning and so for a lot of them they actually found the most cost-effective way to do it was to gain their sort of earn their stripes you could say on these chartered planes in remote Indonesia and sort of send money back to their families in the UK I just thought that was kind of interesting. I'm sure there are lots of people doing that for medical training. And, and uh, I, don't, I, I kind of see those stories and it, it, it encourages me a little bit because ignorance dies. Um, well, actually, I was about to say dies when you're exposed to other things. Of course, it doesn't, that's not always the case. For some people, it reinforces their xenophobic worldviews. But I think for collectively as a society it helps us when we're exposed to as much other stuff as possible which is i guess another long-term effect of covid that we're going to be seeing that uh, i think if people were reluctant to travel before for various reasons they're going to be even more so uh, now claire and i are in the situation where we're just frustrated that we didn't, didn't travel more before all of this started although even though we we I've talked about before where I joke how we kind of took an oath of poverty together. So we, we don't have a car. Uh, we live in a tiny apartment. We don't really go out or do anything special or interesting here. And we just pumped all of our money into two things. A, saving for a house deposit. Eventually we'll want to do that. And B, travel. Like that, those were the things that we had decided were most important. Yeah. Interesting how the um, the former continues sort of unabated and the latter has has not really been touched for a while. That said, though, I mean, we we use the envelope budget system thing that I've uh, raved about here many, many times. And that travel envelope is getting mighty fat <laughs> right now from not being able to do things. Some of which has been piped into silly things like home servers and hi-fi gear and other sort of trifling, fiddly stuff. Uh I know it's it's uh, I've, we're going to be feeling the long the knock-on effects of this for a long time. Again, to say nothing of the the poor souls who've who've lost their livelihoods and pretty much everything um, to to be able to you know survive. And then there are people like me, and unfortunately, people like Clara, who our jobs are pretty much independent of our location. Um, a couple of years ago, I had to go back to Singapore to do some stuff. Uh, well, I say had to, I was more than happy to. It's like, uh, to me, it's the equivalent of going home. And my boss was more than happy to have me sit at the same coffee shop I sat at over there uh, from when I was a teenager, only working for his company, remote, doing things. As long as I could get a headset and... Is that a... Oh, I think we got a fire alarm over there. Um, 
yeah, as long as I could get a headset and a decent internet connection, I could uh, I could sit there and do my work. He didn't really care where I was. Oh, and I had to maintain Australian office hours, uh, which in Singapore meant getting up at five in the morning, which wasn't super great. But as long as you got to bed early enough, it was fine. That was it was it was a really bizarre experience. I I don't know. Growing up, I was always very. Uh, it'll surprise you to know I was very introverted and there would be weeks at a time where I would just sit at home in um, in our apartment there and I would just sit in my room f- furiously typing on the computer and not even really engaging in social media although or IRC or forums or chat rooms or AIM or MSN or any of that sort of stuff that we had back, back in those days 788530 was my ICQ number um <laughs> Don't ask me why I remember that. Yeah, I didn't even really engage in that. I just liked tinkering and building and learning about how stuff worked and writing code and building stuff. That was what I liked doing. But then something something sparked in me. Maybe it was maturity. I'm not sure. It was shortly after I turned 17, I think, and I got my first laptop. Like, I'd always built desktop computers until that point. So I had a laptop, and I realized that I just, I really, really, really liked sitting at uh, coffee shops, pretty much doing exactly the same thing that I had been doing in the um, apartment, only, or in my bedroom, I guess, only this time I was sort of doing it in public. And it was just that atmosphere of being surrounded by people without a social obligation to engage with them was i don't know like because i guess because as humans we're pack animals like we we survive and thrive and derive a lot of our mental energy and well-being from being around other human beings so like there's that biological urge in me that makes me want to go do that but then on the other side i i love talking with people and running conferences and giving presentations that's all fine up until a point and then you just need to leave me the hell alone to recover for another six hours so to kind of meld those two together you wouldn't expect that sitting at a coffee shop would help introverts do their thing but actually it really really did and you can chalk that up to another thing i miss about covid i just sitting on my balcony at home in the blistering cold for a change, a desperate change of scenery, just doesn't really have the same vibe to it as um, sitting at a coffee shop. But yeah, I um, I had this one specific. It was a coffee bin and tea leaf. That um, I think they're from LA originally, aren't they? They were an LA chain, and they opened in Singapore in nine, I think it was 1997. And so they were in Southeast Asia before Starbucks was, and. To this day, I still maintain it's better than Starbucks. Um, although, depending on who you speak with, that's either a compliment or a, or, or a, a very low barrier to entry. I found I had a couple of them, but so one of my favourites was the coffee bean tea leaf at Millennia Walk, uh, which was sort of in the centre of town. And then, sort of out it out it a little bit further out was in uh, Bishan. I had a bunch of friends who lived around the Junction Eight shopping center and actually one of the the uh, the the part-time jobs i had in high school i was writing pearl code for someone in a industrial park not far from there that was a lot of fun i used to sit there and, and write stuff 
and uh, do things there. It was, it was cool. I actually start. I think I, some of my first ever blog posts were from there originally that I've sort of maintained ever since. But having that kind of detachment from home, like Howard Schultz, the CEO of Starbucks, again, regardless of, of what you think about the man and his um, company, I think it was in his autobiography, he said something which I thought was quite profound. He said that um, he wanted to create a third space. So people have this, um, you have your work environment or your school, I guess, depending on, on what stage in life you are, and you have your home environment. And he wanted to basically have a third space for someone that you could go to during the day and to sort of relax at or to do work that was detached from both of those. So you could get, um, you know, you could recharge your batteries. So as an introvert, this really spoke to me. But that also wasn't a pub or something like that. Like it's somewhere that sort of was more conducive to, to um, yeah, just a different environment, more conducive to thoughts and things. Whereas, a, you know, a pub or a bar or something is, is somewhere that, where you wind down, which is kind of a different thing. Why was I going on about that? Oh, yeah, so I, I, it was strange. When I went back to Singapore a couple of years ago, I sat at the exact same coffee bean and tea leaf at Junction 8. I'm pretty sure at the same chair, even. And so a decade or so had passed, and I was sitting there on a newer laptop and doing work instead of study, but essentially doing the same thing I had been that whole time. It was surreal. Like it was like, and the thing was that it, it even felt like I was just picking up where I left off as well. I, I, I sound Australian and I was born here, but I, even though I've been back in Sydney for a, about a decade now, um, it still doesn't feel like home. I still feel like I'm in an extended boarding house situation. Yeah, it's a bit weird. The hope is that, so long term, I do think I probably want to move back overseas again. Just, you know, Asia is where, is, you know, Asia is where the heart is and that's where, um, <laughs> you know, you can be as rational or logical about all this sort of kind of thing as, as you want, but really the heart wants what it wants, right? I do have to say, though, uh, one, I guess while we're talking about heart, one quick thing did happen in the last couple of weeks. You know when you grow up and you go through periods of life where you reach certain milestones or friends around you reach milestones? So as a kid, it's the person who had their first date or started high school or got their first part-time job or income or graduated or got married or had a kid or got a pet like a dog or something and then you as you get older you start to reach some of those other milestones which are less fabulous so for example you start to have friends who were seemed to be married and happy for a number of years and had a kid and now they're getting divorced um, another one is someone who's had an untimely passing and there's I know I was about to say worse but um, untimely passings regardless of, of what was the cause actually even timely passings like it's always sad when someone goes people who do it at their own hand I suppose um, let me just be refer to it in vague euphemistic terms like that which you can almost certainly sort of put two and two together and figure out what I'm talking about. It's a kind of, yeah. Um, 
knowing someone now in my circle of, of friends and stuff who've gone through that, um, sort of getting that news last week was pretty... I know it, it impacted me a lot more than I thought it would. And again, because I'm incredibly narcissistic and selfish, my first instinct was to think, well, well, how does this, how do I feel about this? And it's really, the thing that scared me was that just how similar his life and circumstances were to mine, like shockingly similar. Same upbringing, same, even same family circumstance. Um, which is, yeah, again, I'll, being a bit euphemistic, but I'll leave it at that. And through various uh, inputs and things, life sent me off in one direction, and life sent him off in ultimately a direction where he basically felt like that was his only course of action. And I, I mean, I knew the guy, I, I, I grew up with him, I, I actually knew him quite well. We'd actually been sort of re-engaged again lately. Um... Just knowing the kind of person he was and just how um, humble and funny and intelligent and caring he was. That's the thing, right? Like it's, it, you can, I think the loss of any life is a waste, but knowing it just, when you see someone who is just so compassionate and empathetic and, um, you know, a real treasure to the world, like you would say that, what was it that, uh, was it Don McLean? I can't remember the guy who sang that song about um, Picasso. And he said, the, uh, the world was too beautiful for you. That's why you, uh, you had to go. I kind of feel like, <clears throat> whoa, oh, choking up. I kind of feel it's sort of a similar thing. <sighs> anyway, yeah, I've kind of been thinking through it. You know, you go through all of that, that, those really unhelpful thoughts where you sort of say, could I have done something to stop this? Where was I in his hour of need? Obviously not there. <laughs> Otherwise, something would have happened that you, you ultimately blame yourself for a, a large part of it. The reality, of course, is that you know, there are so many circumstances that lead to someone to do that. And I'm sure there was, for, for all of that uh, bubbly enthusiasm and silliness that he had, there was obviously a much darker, more sinister side to him that he, and demons that he was struggling with. Same thing, I mean, it's, I think it's why I, I took Robin Williams's passing to, to heart so much. Like, he was just, to me, he was just all the stories that I'd heard about him. Like, he was just apparently just such a caring, silly, nice person, in addition to being just excruciatingly talented. Yeah, it, it seems like, um, or was it that phrase that those are the, um, uh, the people who are, uh, don't know much are, are, are certain and those who, are, who, uh, who know a lot are full of self-doubt? Yeah. Anyway, so I kind of, yeah, I wanted to acknowledge that. Um, yeah, I guess what else has been going on? Uh, I've... Uh, got the uh, work's been going well. Um, wow, this, this, I didn't mean for this to turn into essentially like a 20 minute therapy session where I just uh, rant and rave about stuff. I saw an article, actually, I'll close with this, uh, something that I thought was really good, and uh, I don't have it on my hand either and I can't not I don't have it on hand and I can't remember the guy's name I think it was something like Ken Smith or someone it was one of these copywriter bloggers that I that I have read for a long time 
he wrote a post recently which I thought was just fantastic. He said, and you'll pardon the, uh, the, the French here, he said, you, sometimes you need to give yourself permission to not give a fuck. And he wrote that, like, it was beautiful. He wrote this post. He was like, so I can tell that you give a fuck about something. Um, stop. And then he, he puts a whole bunch of ellipses. <laughs> and a few paragraphs down, he says, okay, have you stopped? I don't believe you. Of course you haven't, but I want you to. And uh, he, he's sort of talking about how, uh, especially like social media and these kind of things really condition you into wanting to, um, uh, from the moment you wake up in the morning to the moment you sleep, you need to check and feel like, okay, what is it? What is this thing? Um, uh, people talk about, oh, what am I supposed to be outraged about? And it's like, okay, that's a cancel culture and all of that nonsense. At least like made up terms and things. I think his point was that, yeah, I mean, that's all seeing pylons and things like that is is negative and destructive but really for him the biggest thing is just he just sees news all the time and he's sad for people and that makes him sad and it means that he wakes up in the morning and he's sad and then he sees news in the middle of the day and it makes him sad and then in the evening before he goes to bed he looks at his phone and he sees more news and it makes him sad which means his dreams are sad and he wakes up the next morning looks at his phone oh look here's some stuff that, to make me sad <sighs> I think one of the, the hardest bits of advice that I've ever received that I really want to take this, but for some reason I just get this mental block, is you have to, you have to look out for number one first. Because if you give, the world will keep taking. Like, the world can take more than you can give. And you can burn yourself out in a pit of... Um, empathy fatiguing despair and it won't solve any of the world's problems at some point you also have to look out for your own health and well-being first give yourself time to decompress and then you can help tackle the world's problems because you being a, an anxious nervous wreck isn't helping anyone either i think that was actually something that a, a, a friend of mine um who uh, and a former colleague used to tell me i was talking about how guilty I felt that the whole rest of the world was just really struggling so much with COVID and I was sitting there on the balcony of uh, an apartment that I rent with a with my uh, partner of 10 years who I love very much um, you know roof over my head plenty of food to eat uh, stable income whinging about how I can't travel and I felt like this is just the most entitled selfish thing ever and his response he actually is sort of so we're doing a video call and he sort of did this eyebrow raise thing which he does better than anyone else i know and he said is you feeling pity about yourself making the world any better <laughs> i was like no i guess not <sighs> sorry i also just maybe i'll just close with this it, it i just brought this to my attention that there's i'm walking around this business park at lunchtime here it's a bit of a break um, from work and and of course because it's a business park and Sydney's in lockdown there's no one here and a couple of cars drive past but that's it and there's this tessellating pattern on the ground and I guess someone replaced a pipe or something under here and so they've replaced the tiles but they've replaced the tiles in such a way that the pattern is now broken and this is causing me more concern than it should in fact, actually, one of the tiles has cracked a bit as well. 
I'd like to get to a point in life where I feel confident enough in myself that I can solve some of the world's problems as well and that I could walk past some tiles like this and not be frustrated. But now I'm going to be looking at this and thinking, uh, maybe I need some, I need some cognitive behavioral therapy. What I'll do is I'll make the, the cover art for this episode, this, this tile pattern that's wrong, and that will force me to, to come to terms with it. That's how it works, right?